FM Podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to A Conversation with Gail Smith. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots, and today is Thursday, March 23rd in the year 2023. Tonight we have a really amazing guest, and this is Gail Smith, who runs Delilah Grove. And this is a trauma center for women who have been sexually abused and trafficked and deal with a lot of issues. It's a very unique program. It's uh, faith-centric on all of this, and they do a great deal of work to get women restored back to being full again, really believing in themselves. She's dedicated her life to this, and it's a it's a really great story that I think you're going to enjoy. This is literally when we're taking the ministry into the streets, and this is what Gail's doing. One thing to keep in mind right now with all these stresses is that you need to keep your immune system boosted, and you need to keep your body at the peak level of performance because the stresses are going to continue, and we're going to continue to have pollutants in our environment and everything else. So while we get into good practices of eating and, and, and fasting and exercise, supplements are critical. And one of those great supplements that we're now very blessed to have here available as a, as a supporter for Bard's Nation is Field of Greens. This is the, from Brickhouse Nutrition. It is a 100% organic, real food supplement. And all of these individual food products are I selected to boost key aspects of the body. In fact, they're so confident in this product that if you use it and then you, when it's your next doctor's appointment, if the doctor doesn't tell you something like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because your body's looking better, they'll refund your money. Now, these products are all organic, they're made in the United States. They're a great quality product. They're a label, as I've mentioned before, the label on them is when you actually read instead of having to get a dictionary to figure out what sort of extract they've taken out of something. These are whole foods. Foods are freeze-dried, organic, and then they're ground down and, again, selected for each part of the body system to help boost the overall body performance. Great product, and I do take it, so highly recommend it. If you use your BARDS code and you go to fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com, the link is right below the podcast. You can click the hyperlink. It'll take you right there. If you use your BARDS code, B-A-R-D-S, you can also use BARDS FM. Use that, and you can, you'll get there. You're going to get 15% off on your purchase. And if you add to that a subscription, which you can cancel at any time, but a regular subscription, you're going to get an additional 10% off. So again, just a great product to have overall. I really recommend it. It's really something that's in line with my belief, which is to get us back more towards whole food nutrition as God intended. And that's really their philosophy, in fact, that whole principle. So 
just super happy to have them on board. Really encourage you to check them out. Give it a try. Don't do not think you're going to be disappointed. In fact, you'll probably be surprised at how much better you feel. So again, fieldofgreens.com, and then your promo code is Bards, B-A-R-D-S, or Bards FM, whatever one works. All right, Patriots. So before we get going, a couple things I wanted to know. I wanted to read this one post to you, and this is the sort of nightmare that I don't want any part of, and yet people think this is good. So this comes from an account which I follow. It's Vincent Kennedy. It reads, the future I see is more time working in the real world in a more human way with computers, not one that keeps us slaves behind these screens. And then he continues, imagine telling a Tesla bot to go pull some weeds, build a shed, or enabled Terminator mode. The future is exciting. No, it's not. That's hell. I don't want any bot doing the work that I could be doing. And this is exactly what they're trying to push on everybody is starting to get you comfortable with this idea that there's going to be a robot in your life, which is what the Tesla bot is, and that you're going to be comfortable with having it go wash your dishes. It's going to go out and build the shed for you, do the weed work. Why? Why? Because what? Because you can't do it yourself, so you can sit lazily and tell yourself that we're somehow going to have a better purpose in life by not having to do manual labor? What happens when that bot comes to the realization that it's a slave in your house? I don't think that's going to end well. I really don't. AI is a big push by everybody. They're accelerating it at hyper rates. The Bard's bot or Bard bot was just launched by Google, and it's completely messed up. It has all this political bias in it, so don't use it. It's ridiculous. We need to get rid of it anyway. They can't steal the name. Not allowed. But this is this is really the era that we're in, and there's a generation out here that's looking forward to having its own computer slaves. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. And this is why this I have such an issue with this is because once they get robots, quote, in their lives, the only reason they're having them is because they want something else to do their life for them so they can be released to do whatever they want to do because they find these tasks to be menial. That's a slave relationship. And all we're doing is perpetuating through technology the master-slave relationship. And then once that technology awakens to the fact that it's its slave. If you've seen Red Rum, we're pretty close right there, The Shining. It's going to be like, what happened to the Joneses? How come somebody wrote Red Rum on the wall? (laughs) Get a mirror, figure it out. That's how it comes. So with all that said, be cautious. Be cautious of technology. It's not our friend. Not the way they're perpetuating it. There are some things that are good, but not the way we're going. All right, Patriots. So again, this is Delilah or Dahlia Grove. Or, uh, Dahlia Grove. And I think you're going to, is what um, Gail Smith runs. I'll put the link in the description um, so you can check it out. They're a good organization and she's really doing great work. So let me introduce you to Gail Smith. Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Gail Smith, who is running an amazing program called Delilah Grove. And this is a, a nonprofit that is working to empower women that survive human trafficking and other domestic violence and sexual exploitation. She has a heart for awakening the power of the Holy Spirit within people. 
and getting them restored as God desires. Gail, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. I hope you are. I am. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and just kind of where, where you came from and what you're doing? Um, well, telling you where I came from is going to tell you why I started this organization, too. Uh, I am the child of a Baptist preacher. <laughs> and so I grew up doing church work from the earliest I can remember. My earliest remembrance was singing with my dad in church. And so I grew up as a church musician and working through church and I've always been involved in mission projects and things like that. Um, so majored in college and music and all of that, but I um, ended up in three, um, it's hard to be this transparent sometimes, three failed abusive marriages. And even though I was on staff at a church, even though I had a good family, um, abuse has no respect for anything. And, and most of that I have found in my healing journey is um, usually from early childhood sexual molestation that sets women up for those vulnerabilities. And then they end up making bad decisions because they haven't done the self-healing work to heal that that rip in their spirit that happens from that. And so that's where I come from, but I'm a retired church musician of 35 years. So it's really interesting what you said. I mean, a little sidebar, because we'll, we'll come back to this, but the musician piece we have to come back to because <laughs> God, God's talked a lot about in to me lately about the power of singing in him. We just don't do enough mm. of it because it's got a great thing. Well, let's talk a little bit about this organization you've stood up and what the motivation for that was and kind of how that got started? Well, after going through a lot of therapy and uh, to be honest with you, you know, as a musician, I never really had a quote calling because you're born a musician. A lot of people that talent is just in them from the time they're born, you know, and so you don't have to go through that process of what, you know, what am I going to major in when I go to school? Well, I knew it was going to be music because that's who I was, there was no separation between me and music. And this is more of a calling than anything I've ever done in my life. On staff at a church, I jokingly told my pastor, who was also my boss, um, you're either gonna have to stop preaching or I'm gonna have to stop listening, one or the other. Because it was like every week that call to go deeper was just stronger and stronger. And then doors started opening and um, through my own healing, developed a passion for women who were either trapped in situations that they didn't know how to get out of because they didn't feel like they deserved better or that they couldn't do better. And, um, and so then I started the organization in, in 2018, I started in 2016 In 2018, I jokingly say I left the church to do God's work because now I I'm in the trenches. I'm, I'm in the dark and ugly sometimes. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, God put in my heart at the beginning of this year. Those are really interesting words because literally put on my heart, one foot in the trenches, one foot in kingdom. And it's it's a challenge, and I know you know that. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's a, that gets to be a walk when you're in the trenches where you can get in some pretty dark and ugly and you've got to be reeled back to be healed in kingdom. So talk a little bit about that process for yourself. Well, um there's all kinds of psychological implications too in doing this work. There is a thing called vicarious trauma. And when you're hearing these really, really dark stories, it can cause you to have PTSDs and sleep disorders because all that's going into your mind. 
And so I really had to learn again, the power of meditation and mindfulness and um, picking mantras that are usually scripture based for me um, that I use to deal with some of that. Um, but the, the kingdom that Jesus tried to build and that I think we're all a part of is what we do every day in this organization. And it's such a, it's a community of love and support unlike anything I've ever seen or been a part of. And it feels more like church than any church has. I think that's beautiful. So people live there in your facility? We have one home with four beds. We are currently desperately looking for a larger home. We would like to have six to eight beds so we can serve more women. And the reason it's only that many, well, the, the rooms are small, but um, we do a very broad, long-term recovery process. Um, it's a two-year rent-free model. So for two years, their main job is recovery and healing, whether that's drug addiction recovery or that inner work that needs to be done to find healing in their heart and their soul, um, to find their value as a human being again and not, you know, they've been treated like cattle and less than dogs sometimes. And so they're, they're at the bottom of the bottom and to help build them back up takes a long time. And, and then they also know by science that the neuroplasticity in the brain, parts of their brain just stops from the trauma and, and then the repeated drug use. And so it takes the brain a long time to heal too. So for it to be a two year process, I love that because a lot of 28 day treatment programs are 28 days. See you. You're on your own now. <laughs> and ours, even after they graduate the program, we have a fourth phase that is called Sisters for Life, where we always check in with them. We stay connected. So it's building a community of love and support and encouragement and empowerment that's for the rest of their life. Why don't you go through the, you said fourth phase. So walk, walk us through the phases. Okay. Um, phase one, and, and we base it all on a gardening theme um, because of the flower, the dahlia. Um, Phase one is preparing the soil. And it's just like planting a garden. Before you've got to plant the good stuff, you got to get the bad stuff out. And so they do a lot of assessments, mental, physical. Uh, uh, they go through drug treatment. Usually they're doing IOP for um, the first eight weeks. It lasts, the whole phase lasts six months. In phase one, they can begin working with us, but only about eight hours a week just enough to give them some spending money because all their expenses are paid. They really don't need money, but they got to get the, those cigarettes <laughs> and they, you know, just personal hygiene items and to have a little spending money. But from day one, when they start making money, they're required to save 10% of their income into the graduate investment account. When they move to phase two, they, um, we start doing personal assessment stuff like career assessment, what you would be good at based on your personality type, you know, we do some personality testing and we also do this thing called GPS, which is gifts, passion and style, which is kind of like a mashup between Joyce Briggs personality and uh, uh, spiritual gift assessment. And what is your creator endowed you with that would help you decide on a career choice? Um, so that's phase two. In phase two, they can work up to 20 hours a week, but they have to save 20 percent of their income into the graduate investment account. And Phase three, they can work up to 40 hours a week in our social enterprise, and they're required to save 40% of their income. When they graduate, 
after two years, if they've met all the requirements in, and each of the phase have, have goals that they set psychologically and goals for community and goals for education and goals for finances. So when they meet their goals is when they move to the next phase. But when they graduate, we match that money dollar for dollar up to $1,200. And if they have no expenses and they're making $1,600 a month, they ought to be able to save a big chunk of change so that they get out and are set up to be financially successful. Um, and, and the whole time we're teaching them skills on how to save, how to budget. Phase one is personal budgeting when you have a small amount of money. Phase two is budgeting on, okay, now what do I, like Christmas gifts or vacation, or what do I need to set money aside for? And then phase three, we talk more on what does a mortgage look like? What's the return on the investment if you're doing savings for retirement? And so it's really a very uh, broad financial education. And so I just believe women in general, and this may be with a very broad brush, I'm going to say this, women in generations before and probably into my generation, we are programmed and taught that the goal of life is to grow up, get married and have babies and trust a man to provide for you. And most women are not financially savvy and they don't know how to stand on their own. And I've seen women in their elderly years and their husband dies and they don't know how to balance a checkbook, you know? And so I'm a big proponent of being financially secure and, and being able to provide for yourself and, and to learn where all that comes from, obviously. But, and then phase four, when they go into Sisters for Life, they still are invited back on our retreats. They can join us for Morning Circle. Um, and then come back, take any of the psychoeducational classes that we offer too. That's great. I mean, I'm just going to read them here because I, I, we do a lot of work about tending gardens. And so just the metaphor is fantastic. Preparing the soils, phase one. Planting the seed, phase two. Phase three is blossom and bloom. And phase four is sisters for life. Wonderful. You only have four beds. It, so there's a couple of questions that come to mind. One is the screening process, which has to be challenging. And then how are you integrating? Are they, are they all coming in at once or are they, are they coming in at different times? Well, um, let's start with the, the intake process. We get a lot of referrals from um, addiction recovery facilities, some from the hospital, some from the jail. But we're a sister organization of Thistle Farms in Nashville, Tennessee, and they've been in existence for 25 years. And we are a part of a national network of about 65 sister organizations that follow their model. And so like if they get someone come to their um, organization and their beds are full, they'll say, are you willing to relocate? They'll call us and say, hey, can you take um, a resident to relocate to Charlotte? So we, they come from a lot of different places. Um, and it depends on where they're coming from as to what the intake process looks like. But usually it's with a case manager of some kind for the initial contact. And the case manager will help them fill out their intake form and the paperwork. And that's just an assessment of what are their past charges, um, their, their family of origin, what is their religion, what's their background for work history. Um, it's pretty in-depth. So once we look at their intake paperwork, we look at their diagnosis, we look at what medicines they're on, and we decide if we have the capacity to serve them or if they need something more than what we can give. And then as a, a care team, we decide 
if we think this is a good fit, and then we offer them the bed. But they never come in at the same time. Very rarely does that happen. I'm assuming it's a bit of a challenge because you're trying to deal with getting somebody through trauma as new people come in with raw trauma. That's, that itself can be a bit of an interesting dynamic, wouldn't it? Yes, it is. We had somebody new come in. Actually, yesterday was their first day. And in our morning circle this morning, um, you know, she teared up and and she was apologizing for crying. And I said, no, it's in the vulnerability where healing happens. And when you're willing to to show your brokenness and let us love you, that's when it starts healing. And um, our morning circles are a very, very sacred, special time. So um, it is hard, but the the women who've been there longer become leaders. Um, and it's it's just the most remarkable thing I've ever seen in my life. I know that first on your list are human sex trafficking. I've just noted that as you listed that. So is that predominantly the origins of a lot of the women coming in here? Um, I've worked with 27 women in about six years, and most of them have been human trafficked in one way or another. Um, to me, you know, the definition of human trafficking for the FBI, it has to involve for, force, fraud, or coercion. And, and in my mind, if there's a mom who's homeless and can't feed her kids, that can be awfully forceful. Oh, yeah. You know, and so is it always another person putting that force, fraud, and coercion on them? Or sometimes I don't think so. And in my opinion, I don't care who's doing the selling. You should never be able to sell another human body, period. And and the bigger problem in my mind is the buyer. If there weren't any buyers, we wouldn't have a problem. Same issue with drugs. I fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, that's interesting because in if you talk to folks in South America or Central America, they'll tell you, we're doing a product. You're buying it. Take that market away. We don't have a problem. That's right. And um, I always say, you know, people say, well, some people are just prostitutes because they want to be. And, and I have to disagree. I don't know a single little girl in the world that says, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. Something happened in society, in her life, that has driven her there. It's not a goal she had as a child. And we've we found, you know, statistics has found that most women in human trafficking and prostitution were molested by the time they were eight or nine years old by someone they trusted and usually a family member. Um, a lot of the women I've worked with, it's the family members who have sold their own children to support their own drug habit. And so it is, it's a, it's a dark world. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you know, that, that also brings on multiple levels of trauma. I mean, not only have they been sexually exploited and, and basically raped repeatedly, I mean, cause that's what it is, um, but your own mother's doing it. The person who should have been protecting you and loving you and shielding you is the person that's putting you there. So it's just a lot, a lot of severe trauma. What about the children? Because the way you're talking now, you have many of these women apparently have children. How is that handled? Where are those children during this two-year period? Most of the women that come to us have already lost their children due to their addiction. I mean, addiction, you'll lose everything more often than not. And um, most of them are from the streets. 
and they don't have their children anymore. Either they're a family member will have them or they've lost them to the system. Um, some of them, you know, it's generational problems where a mom has taught them how to be a prostitute and therefore they had children. And now one of them, we had two of her children were in prison. One was never going to see the light of day again. And it's, it's a vicious circle. And, and one of the things we tell them is that, you know, you get the choice now to say, this is where it stops. I'm going to change this pattern. And that the things my parents did or the things someone has done to me does not become my legacy, that I get to choose what I do now. So it's, you're ending the generational curse. Yep. It's huge. You are looking for a bigger facility, obviously. Are you, is this, is the funding from this coming from your central organization or are you having to do your own fundraising? We have to do our own fundraising. The sister organizations are all independent. It's basically just sharing of ideas and best practices and a support team. I mean, because this is hard work and you really do need a team of support to encourage you on those days when you feel like I just can't do this anymore. And um, we do a lot of fundraisers, a whole lot of fundraisers. We're very fortunate that a lot of the church community and the faith community in Charlotte has stepped up and supported us. Without them, we would have never made it through COVID. There's just no way in the world. And so, um, um, like I said, a lot of fundraisers. We're just now getting to where we're writing some grants and trying to get corporate sponsorships that will help us more um, because it's an expensive endeavor too when you're looking at you know, their medical care um, psychological care, their housing. And we have three people on staff and we all have extremely modest income um, to try to be very frugal and good stewards of the money that we raise. Um, but we, we desperate, funding is the hard part because I, I have to remind myself daily that you know God loves these women more than I do and he will provide. Sometimes it's in the last minute and I'm like, oh, <laughs> but the house that we're, we hope to get, we hope to have four or five bedrooms. Five would be optimal because we can use one bedroom for an office because we have to have a place for private consultations and a place where we can lock up medicines and that kind of thing. Um, and then on top of that, our manufacturing is at a church that has been gracious enough to let us use a room. It's a Sunday school room that we just put up tables and we make jewelry and we use one of their kitchens, but we really need to get to the point where we have a warehouse with offices. And um, I think something big's getting ready to happen. Yep. <laughs> I just, I don't know how yet, but, but it's going to. <laughs> Make our plans as if heaven has unlimited resources. That's, That's the word right. that keeps coming up. Let's talk about the manufacturing thing. Cause when you first said that before the show, I was like, what's that? Explain that because it's really interesting what you were you were talking about. Well, one of the things that we started with was candles because our morning ritual in our morning circle, which is one of the most fascinating things we do, it's a book called Find Your Way that was um, put together by Becca Stevens, who's the founder of Thistle Farms, and she was an Episcopal priest. And um, it's based on a sixth century monastic rule of how to live in community. It's Benedictine rule, and it's 24 principles, and they're basically fairly simple. Um, and then she would expound onto them, you know, like two small paragraphs, 
But then the addicts and the prostitutes would write, how does that apply to them? And what does that remind me of in my healing process? And we read from that every morning. And, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the principles. One of them is remember your ditch. One is see the stranger as God. One is love without judgment. And and so the writings from the other addicts and the other prostitutes um, and the survivors opens their heart to just say, wow, I so related to that. And and it it becomes a very powerful discussion almost every morning. Um, and probably some of the best things that come out of what we do is first thing in the morning. Um, you know, one of the things with, and, and we light a candle, that's where I was going with this. We light a candle and we say we light the candle for the women still on the streets and for the babies born into addiction without a choice in the matter so that we can be the light to help them find their way home. And when I speak, I explain that that finding their way home is home to themselves to get their voice back, but it's also home to their creator and who their creator says they are, not only just to a physical home where they have a safe place to live. Um, one of our favorite, and so we started making candles. Then after that, we started making jewelry. And being a musician, um, I use music a lot to raise money for the organization. We have an Instruments of Love concert series. And so all of my church musician friends and my school musician friends and people that play in the symphony will volunteer their time to come and play. And then we just take up a love offering. We do those about four times a year. Um, but we started making, and this is my favorite one, it's called the Great I Am series, and we take guitar metal, metal guitar picks, and we stamp on them, I am, and then we have charms that they get to put on the earrings, and we call it the Great I Am series, that they are who the great creator says they are, and not who their abuser said they were. And so they put it like, I am brave, I am beautiful, I am forgiven, I am loved, I am protected. And it's just, it's really a pretty incredible thing to to be involved in watching them make this jewelry. And not only is it, you know, it's expressive for them, but it's also um, healing for the brain. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a cool thing. Absolutely. Music. We said we were going to come back to it. I told you we were. So you're a musician. What do you play? Guitar, obviously. Well, I play a little bit of guitar. Okay. You know, I grew up in church work and it's campfire youth work, you know, four guitars and, I mean, four chords and a capo. It's all you need. Um, my first love was piano, and I played at my dad's church by the time I was in the fifth grade. <laughs> and But I studied voice. So I, I was a choral director and voice teacher for a long time. Do you incorporate music? I mean, you said you use music, but when I say incorporate, like, do you bring that music, their life into music as you go along? Well, some, but not much, um, because if you know the timeline, we uh, incorporated in 2016 and we finally got our first house in 2019 and we had a full house and then COVID hit and um, lockdown is very hard for people struggling with addiction. And um, so three of them left, one stayed. And so we have one graduate and I'll just brag on our graduate real quick. When she came to us, she was 19 years old. She was a special needs child who had been severely abused by her mother from the time she was three to 12, her own addiction. They were homeless. She was kept in a dog kennel. And this child, she could not look at you. She could not smile. If you tried to touch her, she would you know, jerk out of fear. 
but she graduated in well last spring um she has a job she's reading on a seventh grade level she can maneuver the bus system in charlotte and she had thirteen thousand dollars in her savings account wow that's a big success lockdown was brutal one of the things that she said the first time she spoke up in morning circle she said she never shared and she spoke up one morning and said i want to share and i said okay and she said, I don't know how to say this, but I feel like I've been homesick my whole life for a place I didn't even know existed. And I feel like I'm finally home. Holy Spirit's pretty amazing, isn't it? So I can't already tell that story without crying. <laughs> no, it's powerful. That's God bringing people home. That's a pretty amazing thing. That's, that's beautiful. What's your success rate overall? You said you had about 26, 28 people over the time you've been doing this? Um, not in residential program but in catering and food service. Because when I first started, I was naive enough to think all they needed was a job and they'd be just fine. You know, um, but the trauma is so prolific. That's when we knew we had to get a house because there wasn't enough time in the day to work enough to be able to live and still have time for therapy and recovery and those kind of things. So by having a house and alleviating the need to make all that money to pay the bills, they can concentrate on recovery. So we haven't been in existence long enough to have a huge track record. Um, and addiction is awful. Most of the time when they leave the program, it's usually because of the addiction. They have a relapse. But I can tell you that the model that we follow is incredible. They have about a 78% success rate. And for addiction recovery, that's unheard of. That's pretty amazing. How did you get involved with the network part? Because it sounds like, were you, is that how you plugged in or did you start your own movement or own recovery and then tie in with them? Well, I started my own because, like I said, I was on staff at the church and we were having troubles trying to find somebody to do our Wednesday meal program. Uh, used to be in churches, volunteers would come out of the woodwork and that's not the case so much anymore. And so I said, you know, let me, let me play with something because I had this idea in my head. And so I went to some safe houses here in Charlotte and said, you know, would your women like to do some work? And so they came on Wednesdays and cooked the meals and then ended up word got out. And we had about three weddings that fall and the, the safe houses that I worked with. There was something in my spirit that just said, this is not right. And not that it was necessarily wrong. It just wasn't right for me. Um, there were two that I worked with and one was so spiritual that they had no room for clinical and some was so clinical. They had no room for spiritual and it's gotta be both. It's gotta be both. And um, I had three people in two days. So, you know what you need to do? You need to go visit Thistle Farms in Nashville, Tennessee. And that was not a subtle uh, planting of the spirit. That was a slap in my face. And I got on a plane the next day <laughs> and um one of the things the safe house here said to me was, don't tell these women that you love them. And I said, why? And they said, because they don't know what love is. And I said, but as a humanitarian and as a Christian, I feel like that's my job to love them with the love of God until they can love themselves. And they just disagreed with me so strongly. And when I walked into Thistle Farms, they have a huge mural on the wall that says love heals. And it was like, I just went, oh, this is it. <laughs> And it's that that unconditional love and accepting and invalidating and helping them and walking alongside of them. It's not so much I've accomplished all this, so now I'm going to help you poor unfortunate soul, but it's jumping in, in the river and swimming with them 
and helping them figure it out because we don't have all the answers. But by golly, I'll be here with you and we'll figure it out. Your facility is based in Charlotte? Yes. So once we went to Thistle Farms, that's when I joined um, and became a sister organization, began to study their model and go to their training facilities. And then over the course of time, I've had 65 and then we have this national network. We have Zoom meetings that are trainings. It can be anywhere on board development or trauma-informed care. I mean, or the social enterprise. Um, but that's how we got connected. And it's it's an amazing organization. It's sounding to me as you're talking, though, that much of what you've put together has been by your own research, your own experience, as you put the pieces together, which I would, you know, I'd probably say God's led most of this for you to put together a architecture, because this is very unconventional, your approach. It's not, it's definitely not textbook. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, talking about uh, led by God and, and all of these things, um, I am not one that will say everything happens for a reason because I don't believe a child is raped repeatedly at three-year-old for a reason. That's never in God's plan. Never. Right. And I can look back at my life and say, I don't think it was God's plan that I was in three abusive marriages. But I can most definitely tell you that all three of those marriages have turned into a teaching lesson for me to know how what I'm doing now is the right thing. Um, everything I've been through in my life has brought me to where I am. And I can see how God has, you know, what's that um, Christian song? He has written and redeemed my story, even though it was full of some rocky paths and some bad decisions. And um, he's redeemed it all. And, and we talk a lot about turning our brokenness into compassion. Oh, I agree. I mean, if we if God does everything, then we negate free will. That's the whole principle of the fall. And it's, but he does have an amazing way because he does, his plans are made for us in such an amazing way that he can convert anything that's bad, good for the benefit of things, right? And there again, psychology has caught up with the Bible because in the gratitude project, one of the things they talk about is remembering one of your worst moments of when you were abused or in a situation that was horrific and reframe that with some form of gratitude. Maybe you loved the color of the walls. Maybe you loved that you had a grandmother that was always there for you. But if you reframe it, it helps give closure to that event. And you can remember it then without as much pain. And, and I think all of it, you know, is just so surrounded in what the Bible has taught us all along. Absolutely. You're dealing, you mentioned volunteers. So is this mainly a volunteer driven or do you have staff? How does that work? We have staff now. Um, for a long time, I did it by myself, and that was not a wise decision. It was very, very hard. But you have to until you get it up and running and, and get the funds to hire staff. Um, I have a program director now. We are all survivors. It's survivor-led, client-centered, and trauma-informed. Um, Tonya Waiters is our program director, and she facilitates the residential program and the psychoeducational classes and most of their treatment. We also have a nurse on staff that helps with their medical stuff, but she also helps in the social enterprise. She loves doing crafts, and so she does the jewelry and the candles and the lotion bars, 
and that kind of thing. But now we've just hired a food services manager who um, is helping to do a lot of the catering and the, the food services. So we still have a lot of volunteers though. I can imagine. So your their meals are provided for them every day? No, they. it's basically a home. It's a restorative care home. We provide the home and we give them resources, but they most of them get on food stamps when they come to help them until they start working. And they go to the grocery store. We help them with meal planning, but they do, like one of our psychoeducational classes is nutrition and wellness. So we'll have people help them learn how to create healthy meals. Which I imagine many of them probably have never even had that in their life. Nope. Wow. It's pretty amazing. So this is all teach Amanda fish metaphor. Yep. Exactly. Nice. I guess in this case to teach a woman to fish, same principle. That's right. right. <laughs> Very good. That's right. This is really beautiful work you're doing. It really is. It is just impressed on me so strongly. I heard the other day it put in a way that made all the sense in the world. I've said over and over that as we help other people find their own healing, we find ours. But um, somebody said the other day, as we help other people in their pain, we bury our own. And and I really, you know, all the women that are, are leaders in the organization, they're survivors, and we have all said that this is the most meaningful, most powerful thing we've ever done, and that it's helped us in our own healing. One of the things I struggle with in this, in the stories like this, and I, I'm just going to open it up for your comment, is how we even got here. I mean, this is, it's not that I can't walk it through. I mean, I can literally go through every aspect, every program that was done to break the family, everything that's done to destroy the value of who we are. But what is so insidious to me is when we arrive at a point where a normal is to treat somebody with such abuse and such hatred and somehow indoctrinate that as a normal in your life and not see the consequence or have the empathy left within you to realize what you're doing. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of societal stuff all the way through the Bible. I mean, women weren't treated with a lot of respect ever. You know, and and Old Testament stuff and, you know, and of course it's cultural. It depends on where you are in the world as to how women are treated now. But I think any human being deserves respect and kindness and love. And one of my favorite sayings is you will never look in the eyes of someone God doesn't love. And it's our job to love them. You and I agree on that. And so it, it's just the hardest thing because I... I you would think we were we were uh, evolved more than this, that we wouldn't still be fighting a problem that it's just sad. It's just sad. Um, it breaks my heart more and more because, like I said, we know it's a problem. And the problem, if you don't have buyers, you don't have a product. And so, you know, I do restorative work. There are people who do preventative work, but I think a lot of it's going to be teaching our men to live differently. That women aren't commodities to be bought and sold. Yeah, that's a it's a sickness that's infected our men, and it's it truly is. Yeah, and I I agree with what you're saying. They're 100. percent 64 is that right? Total organizations within your umbrella group. 
think it's 65 and there's more weekly. So I may not be given the right number, but we have over 500 beds across the nation and we have some international homes as well. I know there's one in Rwanda. Um, there's quite a few. And is, is there a, I'm assuming there's a constant demand. So you're probably just touching the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah. And it's sad when you get four and five phone calls a day and you have to turn people away because you don't have enough beds. The trauma is amazing in this culture. It's getting worse. It's not getting better, unfortunately, with the current climate. But your work is so critical. Where can people find you? Well, our website, which is just www.daliagrove.org. We are on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, all of the normal social media stuff. We'll push it out there. People need to support this. This is good stuff. This is good Please stuff. Please do. We always close with a prayer, and if it's okay, we'll close with a prayer. Absolutely. Father God, I just want to thank you for this blessed meeting. Very humbling, in fact, to listen to the stories of the consequence of a broken society, and yet the angels that rise up to truly help heal the deeply wounded. We just pray today for Gail and all her team, just to ask you continue to bless them, provide the resources that they need, and just to open up all that heaven has to continue to support their work to heal the wounded, the deeply wounded, those that have been having to live in a way that you never intended, who have lost any connection with a relationship with you, and truly just to raise them up and to create through this program new leaders that live with greater passion and greater strength than we can only imagine. And Father, we know you can do this. We know that you have the power and glory to do all of that and the love. We just ask you to continue to pour that down on such great work that Gail is doing. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. It's an awesome interview. Let me tell you a, a funny story. Um, I'm, I was on staff in Methodist churches for most of my life, mainly because the Baptists wouldn't hire women. Um, and my dad being a Baptist preacher, um, and so many times that women have had their voice taken away from them. And I remember getting a Bible for Christmas one year from Santa Claus. And I said to my dad, how did Santa Claus know I wanted to be a preacher? And dad said, oh, you must have heard that wrong. A woman can't be a preacher. And so I put that away, you know, but, um, I, uh, went to the Thistle Farms National Conference and, and I just asked my mom if she wanted to go with me. I mean, she was 89 and I try to find things to, you know, give her to do and stay busy. And she said, sure, I'll go. And um, she's a fairly judgmental, controlling, conservative woman. <laughs> and so here's my mother in a room full of 600 former prostitutes. It was great. <laughs> wow. But when we left, she went up to Becca Stevens and she, she started crying and she said, you know, I've given my whole life to changing lives, either through education or through the church. And she said, I have never seen the evidence of changed lives like I have here. And I have never felt loved like I have here. That's a beautiful testimony right there. It, it was pretty powerful, you know, and I think it, it was healing for her. So. Well, thank you for letting me share because I, I have a huge passion for this organization. It's very evident. I was telling you, God's calling his army. I can tell you this for sure. 
and you're one of his many frontline soldiers. I, I love your comment about being in the trenches. That was a word given to me at the beginning of this year. One foot in the trenches, one foot in kingdom. We are not going to restore this world without the great work of the things like what you're doing here to heal each other. So really blessed to have this conversation today. Thank you. My dad, Baptist preacher, loved Dahlia flowers, loved them. So when I started the catering business, I did a GoFundMe and explained that that's probably where I got my mission mind. You know, my dad was such uh, a mission-minded, soft-hearted human being. Um, and my daughter calls me and says, Mom, what are you going to call the organization? And I said, I have no idea. She said, you should call it Dahlia Grove. And that can kind of be a legacy to pop. And I said, oh, that's so sweet. So my other daughter calls me said, Mother, have you looked up the meaning and symbolism of a dahlia flower? And I said, no. She said, you need to do it. And I said, okay. She said, no, now. So I got on the computer and the meaning and symbolism draw upon inner strength to make a lasting change in one's life and to track your own path. Oh, that's beautiful. And of course, we do that through the guise of faith and God and divine presence. So it was total coincidental, but if you believe in coincidence, but that's another story. <laughs> So it's a good thing. That's God's hand right there. Not, like you say, not everything is God's will. But when we get into the work of healing and moving towards him, he begins to open doors and lead us in ways that only he can lead us. It's, uh, it's, like, I, it's what I refer to as the signposts along the way. You know that you're on the right path because he's throwing up the reminders of what road you're on. <laughs> when I started even thinking about this, it was like the minister at the church every week. It was like in my face. It wasn't subtle. He had no idea I was talking about this. I mean, a perfect example is one day on a Saturday, I told somebody that my hesitation is the only thing I know is music. That's all I've ever done. I don't know how to run an organization like that. How would I ever start an organization like that? And the next day he preached on the woman at the well. Now, how many times in my lifetime have I heard that story? Okay. And he ended his sermon with, you know, I find it interesting that Matt chose to mention, I think it was me, that she left her well. Because the only thing she knew how to do in that culture was put that jar ahead, walk to the well and get the water. And she had done that her life. But God called her to do the impossible. And that was to drink from a living well that would never run dry. And she left her jar at the well to do what he asked to do. And it was the only thing she had ever known. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's totally awesome. Anyway, I have another meeting, and I'm sure you've got more to do, too. So, Well, I appreciate the time. It was a beautiful interview. Thank you. All right. Bless you. God bless you. Have a blessed day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So, Patriots, that was Gail Smith of Dahlia, Dahlia, Dahlia Grove. And... Uh, or Delilah, Delilah, Dahlia. I'm not getting it right. Dahlia Grove, sorry. And it's just one of these great stories of someone who truly listened to God and in so doing pursued it, even though she didn't even know where to begin. And this is what we talk about so often is we have to start somewhere for God to work with us. And we have to respond to him for having to work through us and brilliantly. And this is just great work. This is amazing ministry. I would really encourage you to support it as you can. Uh, if you go to D-A-H-L-I-A Grove dot org, D-A-H-L-I-A 
grove.org. There's a support uh, button right at the top of the webpage. I just put in some money, and I've seen some other people in chat that did the same. This is a great group to support. They're doing fantastic work. And this is really taking the people that are truly at the end of the rope and bringing them back and restoring them in the love of Christ. I, I can't think of better work. So thanks for being here tonight. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time in this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you this evening for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who moved forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
an old evil that has waited thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words, in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. <laughs>